Good morning and welcome to the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Aldazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between two of us, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go ahead and give us a call. It's 499-9526. And if you put a 225 in front of that number, you can reach us from anywhere in the continental United States this morning. Well, that's a fact, and we would certainly appreciate hearing from you wherever you may be. That's it. Love to hear the different opinions and different symptoms and everything from around the country <laughs> that's right of course we also love hearing from our baton rouge guests i guess we call them guests guests okay guests listeners yeah whichever the whichever word you might prefer <laughs> yeah give us a call it's 499-9526 and we got every one of our lines wide open so there's no waiting and what you don't want to do is wait to write at the end of the show because just about every week when we go out we've always got folks who are on hold and just don't get a chance to get to them and that that happens just about every week mm-hmm. and unfortunately like i said right at 11 o'clock we have to be out of here because no show comes in behind us and boom outdoor go (laughs) (laughs) so go ahead and give us a call and we'll be glad to help you out should you happen to think of something after the show goes off the air you can always or during the week you can always visit our website and get your questions answered that way Mm -hmm. the address is www.agcoauto.com that is a g c o a u t o.com there is a contact bar on every page. You can send Lewis an email any time of the day or night and get it back within 24 hours. That's right. And while you're on there, pop around, look at the different articles and things on there. I think you'll find information on just about any topic you might imagine. The detailed topics is where the real, I guess, the in-depth information is. Of course, we've got the automotive glossary, which gives you a definition of different words and phrases different and terms. acronyms and stuff uh-huh. used in the automotive business. And then we've got the vehicle questions, which is a short, to-the-point thing. And I've been trying to put a real diversity of detailed topics on there. put one this morning on how to select and use a dial indicator. And I know a lot of the folks that we get on the Automotive Hour like to tinker with cars themselves. Right. Some of them are pretty proficient at it. And when you get your basic automotive skills down, your basic mechanic skills down, and you're kind of ready to move to the next level, one of the first things you want to add is some measuring equipment. And some that, fine measuring fine, equipment. That's right. And that allows you to see and detect things that you can't detect with your senses. In other words, your eyes, ears, feel, so on and so forth, can detect so many things. But beyond that, there are movements that are so small. We talk about run out and things like that. You just can't see them with your eye. However, they do cause a problem. Correct. And that's where a dial indicator would come in. It gives you a ability to measure a wide, wide variety of things. And this article goes into how to make a good selection for your first dial indicator. Of course, professional mechanics, I know I've probably owned 10, 15 different ones over the years. Different different styles. Different applications. Right. I still probably have eight or nine of those in my possession. Some of them are very specific. They only do one job. But for a good general use that will do almost anything, it gives you some recommendations, what to look for in an indicator, how to use an indicator, even shows some different setups like how to check the run out on a hub how to check the runout on a brake backing plate, how to drive tell shaft. drive shaft. Right. Uh, there's even one on how to detect whether a bell housing is square with the engine or not, uh-huh. which many times you can get something like a broken flex plate, and you wonder why that happened. Well, with a dial indicator, you can actually detect that. So when you're ready to kind of move to the next level, that's one of the first things you're going to do. So this article goes into that in depth. Real good article. I think you'll really like it. Pop on there, see what you think. It's www.agcoauto.com. And we're going to our phone lines with Rocky. Good morning, Rocky. Good morning, guys. Really enjoy your show. Thanks, sir. Every week, man. Thank you. Look, there are a number of products on the marketplace that are supposed to be like fuel additives that are designed Mm -hmm. to clean your injectors. Yes, sir. 
you guys uh, advocate any type of fuel additives and or oil additives? Not uh, at all, Rocky. And that okay. is basically backed up by all of the manufacturers, be it GM, Ford, Chrysler, Toyota, Honda. None of them advocate use of any type of additives in their cars. What they do advocate is the use of a top-tier grade fuel which is normally a good name brand of fuel and a good name brand of oil. See, the problem that we're getting into today is that your fuel has ethanol in it. Now, ethanol, a lot of people cuss it and fuss at it and all that. It does have a number of bad properties, but one good property has an excellent cleaner. It's a good detergent. In fact, if you look at your fuel injection cleaner, the main ingredient there is going to be ethanol. So you already got 10% ethanol in your fuel. You go dump another can of this in there. Well, now you may be running 12 to 13%. Put two cans in there and the car may not run. So you you don't want to add any of that stuff to. If you're using a good grade of name brand fuel, you're not ever going to have a clogged injector. I can tell you 90% of the injectors, in my opinion, are unnecessarily cleaned in shops. It's kind of a wallet flush. It's something they sell to make up money on other things they don't make enough on or think they don't make enough on. But I got to tell you, Brian, how many injectors have we cleaned this year? This year, I can think of one. Yeah, maybe one set in a year, you know? And, and that was where someone had really dumped some trash into the gas and was using some cheap fuel. But it's just not something you're going to have to do very often. Injectors are basically self-cleaning. If you're using a decent fuel and you're keeping your fuel filter clean, you're not ever going to probably need that. And it can cause problems. It can dissolve the linings in your tank. It can break up all kinds of things it shouldn't. So I would never, ever use any types of additives like that. The only additive I've ever seen that are recommended by the big three, and there's one called Standine, which is for diesel fuels, and that's because the diesel fuel injectors were designed to run with a sulfur fuel, and when they started stripping the sulfur out, they started having some trouble. Standine's a company that actually makes a pump for the big three, and that's the exception to the rule, but that's the only one I've ever seen that they all actually endorse. All right, what about a product called Stable or Stabilizer? Fuel Stabilizer? Yes, sir. It's not a bad product at all, but you have to use it properly. You have to add that to the fuel when it's brand new. It can't regenerate old fuel. A lot of people mistake that. But, yeah, that doesn't hurt anything. What that does, Rocky, is it helps prevent what they call phase separation because the fuel with ethanol, the ethanol wants to separate out and attract moisture and the gasoline wants to rise. And that'll happen in as little as three months. So if you yeah. got to store your fuel for a longer period, add the stay bill to it before, you know, when you, when you get the fresh gas. In fact, what I like to do is go ahead and put that in the can and then fill it with gas. That way it gets mixed up real well. But right, yeah, guys, that's a good product. All right, great help. Thank you, guys. Okay, Rocky. Hey, thanks for calling, man. All right. 499-9526 is the number. If you want to be part of the automotive aisle, we would love to have you. And we're going back to our phone lines with Robert. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Mr. Lewis. Beautiful Saturday, too. Isn't it, though? I got a quick question for you. I'm looking at buying a used uh, diesel. I was just wondering what kind of mileage, like what mileage range should I be looking at? Any particular issues I should look? For? Robert, with any used car, be it a diesel, a gas burner, or whatever, I have a little bit different thought from a lot of people, and that's based on me looking at it from perspective of maintenance and braking and cost. I don't get too concerned about miles. I am way more concerned about years. Because a car that has a lot of miles on it relative to the years has been driven a lot, which is perfect. That is ideal mileage. For instance, I would prefer to have a four-year-old car with 100,000 miles than a 10-year-old car with 30,000 miles. You're going to have far, far less problems with it. It's just the nightmare from hell, if you excuse my French, is the little old lady's car, which is a 10, 15-year-old car that's got 30,000 miles. 
that car is going to have so many problems because everything on it's gummed up. It hadn't been driven. It's been sitting a lot, obviously. You want to try to get the lowest price initially because a lot of people don't know or understand this. If you buy a higher mileage vehicle relative to the years, you can generally get a pretty good deal because normally people discount based on miles. And that's actually completely backwards. So I would be looking for the newest vehicle I could find with reasonable amount of miles on it where it's been driven. Anything around 30,000 miles a year is usually real good because that means it's really been on the road. 40, 50,000 miles a year wouldn't bother me at all. If I could find a two-year-old car with 100,000 miles, that wouldn't bother me a bit. That means it's been driven. It's going to be like brand new. So to save money, go with a little bit higher miles. As a basic rule, about three years is your best break even because they've hit maximum depreciation at three years. And so the price is going to be at its low. After three years, they quit losing value quite as bad. And it probably has not been abused, and it really doesn't have any big issues at three years. I've never had a diesel. Are there any uh, peculiarities you need to know about diesel engines? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess the first thing, John, you can go to my website, and there's an article, Diesels and Gas Burners, and it'll give you a lot more information. But if you really need a diesel, then it's probably great. A diesel is real good at one thing, and that's hooking up something real heavy and driving it across the country and running it a whole lot. It's great at that. If you're buying a diesel to run around town, you could probably be sorely disappointed with it because they're not going to have the same power initially as a gas burner as far as taking off. Now, pulling power have more power. The repairs are absolutely astronomical on them, and the maintenance is very high on them. So if you need a diesel, then you need a diesel. If you don't need a diesel, it's not a very good deal. Most people are going to be dissatisfied with them. Not only that, but the Ford diesels after 2002 really have had a number of issues. If you go online and just Google something like Ford 6 liter or Ford 6.4 or whatever, you're going to see 100,000 people in there complaining. Those are extremely expensive to keep up to the tune of about five grand every other time you go in. So you might want to avoid those. My personal pick would be either one of the earlier Cummings in the Dodge or one of the Duramaxes in the Chevrolet. But, again, this all presupposes that you really need a diesel. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Okay, John. Thanks, man. All right, 499-9526 is the number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we'd love to have you. Hey, we got John on the line. Good morning, John. Hey, Lewis. Quick question for you. I have mm-hmm. a 2010 Honda Accord, mm-hmm. my wife's vehicle, mm-hmm. and uh, we have a popping noise in the right front center of the of the car every time we go down the road and mm-hmm. we get a it can be a small bump. Mm-hmm. Anything in the road, it seems like a, a pop. You hear it very distinct, a pop. Hmm. Okay. I have no idea what that could be. John, that car doesn't have a whole lot of troubles like that. I, nothing really comes immediately to my mind. Has any work been done on the car? Other than uh, tire rotations, the dealership. Mm-hmm. No one's replaced any struts or any tie rods or anything where the front end would have been taken apart? No. Is it a single pop? It's or a is it a single pop? Consistent. Or pop, 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 pop. No, it's just one pop. One pop. You hit a bump, you got one pop, and that'll be it. John, I would say with the symptom you're giving me, the first place I would look would be at the upper strut mounts. And, again, there are some cars that have a lot of trouble with that. Some of the GM cars have a lot of problem with that. Even some of the Toyotas have a lot of problems with that. The Honda's really not so much. But, of course, anything can happen to any vehicle. There are two nuts that are shafts and nuts that are going to stick up through the fenders. When you raise the hood, you'll see one on either side. There may be a black plastic cap over them. Take those off. Look at those little threaded shafts. That's the top of the struts. 
there's a nut there, make sure those nuts are good and tight because it could be that one of those didn't get tightened enough, and that'll make a pop-pop when you hit a bump. Beyond that, I would almost have to see the car. Almost anything that's loose in the suspension is going to result in a noise. They've had some issues with the front motor mount on those, but that's more going to be like when you accelerate and let off, you'll hear a saying it'll be more of a thud than a pop. Okay. So I would really almost have to see that car. John, the way we find that is we put a series of microphones under the car, then we go drive it with a set of headphones on and a rotary switch, and I can switch between the different components, listen until I can narrow it down. I just keep moving the mics around until I narrow it down on the exact spot. And generally, in less than an hour's time, I can tell you exactly what it is. And normally, the fix is not going to be that bad. Almost always on a newer car like that, it's going to probably be something that's loose. Not too likely anything will be worn out yet. It has 40,000 miles on it. Yeah, I, I doubt very seriously anything worn out. You know, it's probably something that either was not tightened properly or got loosened somewhere along the line or worked its way loose. I mean, I wouldn't want to let it go because it's something that could end up causing another bigger problem. Right, but ordinarily they wouldn't be messing around with the struts to do a tire rotation. No. Well, you wouldn't think so, John, but you never know. I mean, when it went in for the new car prep, they could have possibly – come in with a noise and they went in tighten something or loosen something or you know who knows what happens maybe it just never got tightened right maybe the nut that they used on it wasn't of the locking mechanism working exactly right a million things happen mechanical device with probably two hundred thousand parts and if one of them goes bad you got a problem so i would just get that in and go ahead and put some microphones on it locate the noise and then fix it because there's no noise that's ever going to get better it's not going to go away it's not going to heal up and it's going to generally get worse in time. It, does it seem like it's getting any worse as you drive along, or is about staying about consistent? Uh, no, it, it's been progressively more noticeable. Yeah, I would get that in and get it looked at. I just I don't want to see you take a very small problem and turn it into a much bigger problem. And then you look at me and I'm telling you, hey, it's eight hundred dollars, and you're saying why? And say because you drove it for two years. <laughs> you could have been fixed with a tighten and a bolt, and now you know you've got a problem. So yeah, I would get that in and get it looked at. Great, thank uh, you very much. Okay, John, thanks, man. Bye-bye. We're going to take one quick little break, and we'll be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Travel my way, take the highway. Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a few things that chap my hide lately. $150 jeans, vanity licenses that are too complex to read, billboards that say drive carefully. Think about that one. Child beauty pageants. I mean, let's go ahead and set these kids up for failure before they get to kindergarten. And how about when you try to be nice and let someone out in traffic and they won't go because they're talking on the cell phone? Here's a message for you. Put the phone down! Another thing that chaps my hide is repair shops that use Swaptronics to fix your car. That's where they can't pinpoint the exact problem, so they just change parts, hoping to fix something, which means your repair bill could double. The experts at Agco determine the exact problem, then fix it right the first time, at the price quoted, which does not chap my hide. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Oh, welcome back. He's joining us the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Altazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Tree Tools, trying to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go give us a call? It's 499-9526. And just in case you don't get a cash call in, you can always hit us on email. That's agcoauto.com. You just hit the contact button and... 
Fill out the little form and send it to us. That'll get right straight to me. I've got a couple of emails here that I received during the week that uh, some of my thought were made interesting points. We've got Mike from Providence, Michigan. Wow, and that's great. Yeah, 2001 Olsalero, and he says his 16-year-old son ran it out of gas, and they got it home and put some gas in it, and now it kind of chugs and spitters and sputters, but it won't start. Okay. And he was wondering what could have gone on with that. And one of the biggest things on a car is that the fuel pump, does a whole lot of work and the fuel in the tank not only lubricates the pump it cools the pump and also gives head pressure to the pump correct so when a car runs out of gas it really 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 strains the pump considerably and this one had 145,000 miles on it and it's over 10 years old so it's been That's in there right. working the for a while pump is already kind of marginalized and running it out of fuel most likely took the fuel pump out of course i recommend it hey have a fuel pressure test done and if you don't have fuel pressure, go to the back, check, make sure you got power and ground at the pump. If you do, most likely you got a pump on your That's hands. right. With the right equipment, that's a probably a 10-minute test. Yeah, pretty simple diagnosis. Now, what you don't want to do is assume it's a fuel pump. Go put a fuel pump in, and it still doesn't start. <laughs> exactly. Then you're out well, several hundred dollars. If you buy a decent pump, that was probably about a $700 lesson. Exactly. Excluding your time and trouble. Right. <laughs> so that's the last thing you want to do is guess at that. But very, very simple diagnosis. Again, fuel pressure test. And you can't neglect and only do a fuel pressure test because you may have no fuel pressure. But it doesn't necessarily mean the pump's bad. It could be that the relay went out or something because the pump was straining, pulling too many amps, burnt right. the relay out. So you have to take it a step further. Go to the back. Isolate the power line and the ground line. Check and see if you got 12 volts power and ground between the two leads. If you got power and ground, you got no fuel pressure, and you know you've got fuel in the tank, then, then there you go. Now you got a fuel pump. So next step, of course, would be to drop the fuel tank and check the fuel pump. And to do that in the driveway on jack stands is almost a nightmare. Pretty difficult. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a real good question that we got and just kind of shows you a little bit of the diversity of questions that we get. Got another one here from a fellow named Deep, and he is actually in, I hope I pronounced this right, it's Burnsdale, Victoria, Australia. All right. And he has a 2003 Ford Falcon. Really? Which, uh, I have to look up a Ford Falcon to see 2000, what that is. 2003. 2003 Ford Falcon with a four liter in it. Okay. And what he said is that his coil number five doesn't spark when he cranks the car up, but then after about seven to ten minutes, it'll start firing. So I told him, I said, well, be sure that it is really the coil not sparking because a misfire can be caused by a number of things. Correct. Including a, a coil not working. But a lot of times what we do, and I'm not accusing anyone of this, but a lot of times we'll say, Rather than say my car misfires, we'll say, well, it's not getting gas. Well, mm -hmm. we don't know that. That's an assumption. And it's really misfiring for any number of reasons. So what we need to do is, number one, make sure that it is a misfiring call. If that's the case, if it has call packs, you know, individual calls, call on plug, what you do is move that call to a different cylinder. Move it to, say, cylinder number four. And that is working. A known good call to cylinder number three. Now, if the misfire moves, then we've got a bad call. Correct. If the misfire uh, Doesn't stays move. on cylinder three, then the next step would be to go in with something like a digital lab scope or an IDS forward tool and read and see if we're getting a pulse to the call. Because the calls generally always have power to them, and the computer is going to control the ground. So what you'd have to see if you have a pulsing ground to that call when this occurs. If you do, then the call is bad. If you don't, then it's going to be uh, something, something else, upstream, like, possibly. Uh, it could be the, the computer know. itself not sending the pulse if it's not getting it, or it could even be something like one of the sensors, like the 
cam sensor or the crank sensor not seeing that cylinder for some weird reason. So okay. that's the way you'd have to go about diagnosing that kind of a thing. But I thought it was kind of interesting that we got a fellow all the way from Australia giving us an email. Another one here from Tom up in New York. And Tom was saying that he's got a little Honda, Honda Civic, and he had a lot of trouble with brake rotor warpage. Okay. And he's gone in, he said he listens to the Automotive Hour every week. He's gone in, he's replaced his rotors, he's replaced his brake pads with Honda pads. Correct. And the shake is gone, but he wants to make sure that it stays gone. He was just asking, is there anything else that we maybe need to look at? And that's an excellent question, because when you have brake shutter, that is generally a symptom of something else. Right. The brake shutter is not the problem in and of itself. Rotors do warp, and the reason they warp is because either they're not removing enough heat from them or they're overworking. And what happens is that when the rotor warps, it starts to wobble side to side, which wears the two faces out of parallel. Once the faces get out of parallel, that's when you start getting the shutter. So you can actually tolerate a certain amount of brake rotor warpage for a little while. That's why it always goes away when you put new rotors on it. But if it comes back, something else is going on. And there's several indications that would cause a car to consistently warp Well, rotors. that's right. And one of the first is check the rear brakes. Because if the rear brakes aren't working properly, let's say they're out of adjustment. And on those cars, they only adjust when you use the parking brake properly. That means you have to pull up, put the car in park, Take your foot off of the service brake and apply the parking brake. Uh-huh. Then the piston's going to turn slightly, which is going to adjust the brake and keep it adjusted. Now, if you never, ever use your parking brake, that pad can wear and wear and wear, and you can actually end up with the rears getting out of adjustment, in which case the front does more stopping than the rear, and it will stop the car. Sure. So it's going to overheat the rotors, which is going to cause them to right. warp. It's not designed to stop on just the front. That's right, or, or primarily on the front if the rear's not contributing their share. One other thing that a lot of people overlook, and this is particularly, of course, Tom was calling from New York. I think it was Hollowville, New York. Okay. And up in that region, we got a lot of ice and snow on the road, so they use a lot of salt. Now, what can happen is that you get a lot of rust and corrosion under the car. Let's say the brake hub, the hub of the bearing, gets some corrosion on it. And the old rotor was corroded to it. Well, you pull that off. Well, part of the corrosion goes with the rotor. Part of it stays on the hub. Okay. You put the new rotor on. Now it's cocked just slightly. And when I say slightly, one thousandth of an inch. Right. Even a half a thousandth of an inch at the center of this rotor will manifest at probably three to five thousandths by the time you get out to the edge of the rotor. And with that rotor wobbling, it's going to wear irregularly, which is going to give you the different heat panels. And so right. that, therefore, it's going to keep coming back. Great, great emails. Hey, we're going to take one quick little break and be right back with more in the Automotive Hour. Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a few things I'm tired of. I'm tired of reality TV. There's nothing real about it. I'm tired of all those housewives, the Kardashians, the brides, the bachelors, celebrities, and rehab. Here's an idea. Let's ship all the Flavor Flav's, Snookies, and Honey Boo Boo's off to a deserted island and watch America's average IQ jump up a few points. I'm also really tired of automotive repair shops that promote an $89.95 brake job and then hit the folks for $500 and give them a lousy job. Listen to me and take your vehicle to Agco where you get quality work performed right the first time for a reasonable price. And that, my friends, is a reality. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Out noise off the 
Well, welcome back. If you join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Alvazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, Dream Trials, try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Why don't you go and give us a call? Got all our lines wide open, and we'll put you right up to the top of the list. Perfect time to call in. That'd be great. We'd love to hear from you right That's now. That's right, and you don't want to wait till the show goes off the air or later on. But you still could get your questions answered, just not a live personal answer. <laughs> That's right. And a lot of times, I realize it is easiest. If you can talk to someone, because when you're emailing, you have to try to think of everything that they're going to want to know, and you got to send that. And of course, if it's something they don't know, they got to reply, and you got to do it again. So I know it's a little more of a pain. So that's why we do the radio show. Right. So you can get a live answer, mm-hmm. ask all your questions, and maybe learn a little bit well, that's out right. of the deal. That's right. Maybe I'll learn something. So there you go. <laughs> you know, the one thing that we actually do not do, and that's call me at the shop, because I just can't take calls at the shop other than folks whose vehicles are in the shop being worked on. Correct. Just because we're working on probably 30 cars at a time, sometimes more than that, and that takes 100% of my time between writing those jobs up, handling the parts situation, making sure everything's there on time, making sure all the work's progressing through the shop, answering the questions of the folks who are paying my salary. I just don't have time to come to the phone and answer calls and it's not that I'm rude or that I don't want to. That's why we have the website, and that's why we do the radio show. So we wish we would do that. Now, also, our staff at AGCO are trained to handle 99% of the questions you might ask. Correct. Very often, folks will call, and they'll refer them to the website, and they'll say, well, are y'all open? What's your hours on Friday? Whoever answers the phone can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> and believe it or not, Elaine has been there for going on 20 years now, so Holy I have trained mother. her pretty well. And even Elizabeth can answer probably 90% of the questions you might have. Uh-huh. So just give them a call. If they can't, they can find out for you. So right. that's the way to go about getting your information. Don't get your feelings hurt because I can't stop and come to the phone and personally answer your call. It's not that I don't want to. It's just that I physically can only do so much in a day's time. And my first responsibility is always to the folks whose vehicles are in the shop. Right. There's actually five techs out in the shop, and you're the only one doing the paperwork. Sur- service to- writing. To get it done, so. Well, that's right, and not fair to people, just like if your car were in the shop, you would want 100% of my attention dedicated to that. Uh-huh. You don't want me off running around doing <laughs> other things. So it's only fair when a person's car is in the shop that they get 100% of my attention, because it does require 100% of my attention that to it does. get the job done. So anyway, just a little heads up there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to say it, So. And we were talking just a little bit for the break about brake shutter and all that Uh to beat a dead horse. The same thing, we talked about the rear brakes not working. The same exact thing holds true with drum brakes on the rear. Exactly. Uh, Those on 99% of the cars you're going to come across, unless you're working on a big truck of some sort, you're probably going to have leading trailing brakes on it, which may look like the old dual servo brakes we used to have, but they are totally different in the way they function. And with dual servo brakes, the rear brakes would adjust when you backed up or things like that with the leading trailing brakes they actually only adjust when you use the parking brake properly right so get in the habit of using that parking brake when you park the car and of course in south louisiana it is absolutely flat you pour a glass of water on it it ain't even run that's off. it that's it uh, i mean if you're up in tennessee or virginia or pennsylvania somewhere where it's real hilly you probably get in the habit san francisco you probably get in the habit of using that parking brake right just around here it very rarely gets used. Well, It'd be a good I, habit to get into. I guarantee that car is not going to roll off. <laughs> <laughs> but there is another reason why you need to do it. So, get in the habit of using that might prevent you some brake problems in the future. There you go. And we're going to our phone lines with David. Good morning, David. Good morning, Lewis. How are you doing? Doing great, sir. Look, I've got a question. I just bought a third vehicle and an SUV that I have. It's going to turn into a spare vehicle. Okay. It's about 130,000 miles. It's been running good, been maintaining it. 
just generally, how should I approach this vehicle about maintaining it for long term, keeping it as a spare vehicle, you know, using it every once in a while to keep it, mm-hmm. you know, keep it lubed and things like that? Mm-hmm. What advice mm-hmm. can you give me? David, you're going to need to get some use on that. I recommend no less than about 20 to 30 miles a week at highway speed. And if you can't manage to do that, you're really better off to go ahead and just sell the vehicle and move on because vehicles that sit would get less use than that. They're going to deteriorate real fast. I mean, they're just going to go straight down. And I know nobody wants to get rid of an extra vehicle. If you're going to keep it, plan on driving it 20 to 30 miles a week at highway speed. And you may have to take it to work one day or whatever, just rotate it in or, or whatever you have to do. But the absolute worst thing you can do is just to pull it out of service, let it sit there for weeks on end, and then go hop in it and try to use it. It'll last a little while, but it's going to go down real quick. Now, you recommend using it every week. As yes, sir. Opposed, how would it be if I like, took it out for like 50 miles once or twice a month? Do you recommend that I go to doing something every I week? I would try it? to do something every week, David, because what's going to happen, first off, your battery life is going to go in a toilet. You'll be putting a battery in it every year if you don't drive it every week because that battery is going to discharge slightly. It's not getting recharged, so that's going to be an issue. The second thing is things like shock absorbers sit there in one position, and so it's little rings on the piston start to etch the bores. The wheel bearings sit in one position. Little balls tend to etch into the races. Just everything on it, you know, clutches and the transmissions start to bond to the steels and stuff like that. Then when you start to use it, it all breaks free. But every time it does that, it starts producing debris and causing other problems. Not only that, but so many things are time sensitive. For instance, the coolant and all still has to be changed. The belt still has to be changed. The hose has to be changed. It just ends up something that you don't, you cost per use is going to be so high on it that you'd almost be better off just to go ahead and sell it, take the money, stick it in a CD, and then go rent a car or truck or whatever you need when you need an extra one. Okay. You know, it's kind of like a man who retires and he just says, well, I'm just going to go sit on the couch. Yeah. just don't work out real well. (laughs) No. Uh, uh, uh. Well, look, man, thank you. All right, David. That way I can develop the plan around this and and execute it, and uh, hopefully we can keep this thing for quite a while with a third vehicle. Good deal. Yes, sir. Thanks for calling, Dave. Bye-bye. I four nine 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 five two six. The number. If you want to be part of the automotive, I would love to have you. And we got PJ online. Good morning, PJ. Hey, how y'all doing? This doing great, sir. Good morning. I got something a little different for y'all this you morning, Lewis. I got an old forty-year-old garden tiller. Okay. And I need to change the gear all in it. What kind of gear all? Could you tell? Could you help me with that? What kind of gear all to use in it? PJ, that probably came with ninety weight gear all, which you can't hardly find anymore. But if you can find seventy five W ninety, which is going to be a multi viscosity equivalent, that's what you're going to want to go with. And on something that old, if you can find a non synthetic product, you'd be better off with it because. Synthetics are great for a number of things, but they're not required in an application like that. And they're going to get in there and they're going to clean up every little bit of crud and sludge, and it may start leaking everywhere because you probably got some crud and sludge holding everything together, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, your seals and all. And if you put that uh, synthetic in there, you may start leaking at all your seals. So just yeah. a 75W90 GL5 or GL4 even gear all would work on that. Shouldn't be too, too difficult to come across. All right, and then when I fill it, should I tilt the tiller back or just leave it in the regular position and fill it till it starts pouring out? Yeah, like normally it doesn't have a plug like in the side at a certain level up. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's normally going to be your check. And what you do, you fill it until it runs out, and that way you know you're full. It's kind of a, it should be on level ground when you do that. All right, good deal. That All right. It runs like a top. Good deal. Okay, thanks. All right, PJ, thanks, man. Bye-bye.
right, 499-9526 number. If you want to be part of the automotive hour, we'd love to have you. And going back to the phone lines with Donald. Good morning, Donald. Good morning. Thank yes, you all for being there. Thanks, sir. Good morning. I got a 202 Toyota truck. Uh-huh. And I went, when I went to get the election tag, they said the parking brake does not work. Okay. At all. You press it all the way goes, down. Yeah, it's going to uh-huh. do mm-hmm. anything. Mm-hmm. And then it also it's pulling to the right. Okay. When I drive. Yes, sir. Probably two separate issues, Donald. On the parking brake, most likely it's just way out of adjustment. And we kind of talked about that a little bit earlier on in the show. When they get past a certain point, they'll just quit working altogether. So using them won't have any effect. What you need to do is to bring it in, and we can take and pull the drums off, go in, clean, lube, and adjust everything, and that'll get it up and working again. The only other alternative is that something like a cable has broken, but that almost never happens. When you do mash the pedal to the floor, does it feel like there's some resistance on it, just not a whole lot? Very little. Yeah. If, as long as there's some resistance, probably not going to be a broken cable. Like I said, they just get out of adjustment as the pads wear, and sooner or later they'll just quit working completely. That's a relatively inexpensive service. Generally takes less than a half an hour to do the whole deal, and that'll get you up and running. And in the future, just start using it occasionally, and it'll stay up. You know, it won't go back down like that. On your pull to the right, what I would do first off, go to my website, Donald, and there's an article I just put on there, Why a Vehicle Pulls. And there's a number of reasons that cars pull other than just alignment, particularly if it kind of started all of a sudden and you didn't smash in there anything or any of that. One of the biggest things is that you've got a tire with a problem, pretty easy to isolate. All you do is just jack it up, take the right front tire, temporarily move it to the left front, take the left front, temporarily move it to the right front. Go drive it again. If it pulls the other way, then you got a tire problem. So no use going any further. you got to deal with that. Alignment can't help that issue. And normally it's going to be the tire that is pulling towards. In other words, if it's pulling right, you move the tire to the left, and it starts pulling left. It's going to be the tire that's now on the left front. That is about, I would say, 90% of the time what the problem is going to be. Now, beyond that, obviously, anything can get out of alignment, but those vehicles don't get out a whole lot. you got to really, really nail something hard enough to bend something for them to get out of alignment. So I would try swapping the tires first and just see what that does. Okay, what's your the office number for the appointments? 291-6900. Great, I'll do that next week. All Thank right, Donald. You, sir. Thanks, sir. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, 499-9526 is the number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Hour, we would love to have you. Why don't you go ahead and give us a call? we got Dean online. Good morning, Dean. Good morning. Yes, Good morning. Sir. Thank you for taking the call. Yes, sir. I'm in the process of working on a Chevy Silverado. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, 2003 4x4. Uh-huh. I removed the transmission. And I'm in the process of taking the bell housing off of the transmission. Okay. There are eight bolts that hold it. That's right. Uh, they take a T50, it fits the, the head of the bolts. Uh-huh. And uh, I broke one, and I've rounded off another T50 socket. Hmm. I did a little research and found that those particular bolts take a T50 plus. Yeah, that's a little bit different. That's kind of like a bowl font. <laughs> you know, you got New Times Roman, New Times Roman bowl. That's a little bit different thing, and the T50 will fit in it, but it will round it off. So, yeah, you're going to have to have the plus. When they came out with Torx, at first I said, okay, here's another fastener. But then they've got Torx, Torx Plus. They've got, oh, there's probably five or six varieties of them. And every one of them is a little bit different, but you just got to have the right tool or else it will do exactly what it's doing. It's just going to round off on you. Is that common with those 
Oh, yeah. Standard mix fasteners, just, it's wild. I think GM, Ford, and Chrysler must own the tool companies. You know, I've, I've seen them mix standard and metric. Oh, yeah. Uh, fasteners yeah, together. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's unbelievable the proliferation of tools that you got to have just to service us something you would think would be a simple deal. Yeah, I even dropped putting heat to the uh, head. No, the no, you're just going to have to have the right tool, man, and nothing else is going to work. It's kind of like a, a couple of weeks ago I wrote an article on Phillips screwdrivers, and most people don't realize there's at least three different Phillips screwdrivers out. And they start stripping out Phillips screw holes. They don't know why, because they got the wrong screwdriver. Okay, any hints about removing those bolts up besides just getting the right tool? Is there? No, there's nothing you're going to do. You're going to have to have the right tool, man. Nothing else is going to do it. And if you strip them out already, you may have to drill and, and tap them out. Yeah. What works pretty well if you get the right tool is you can take a piece of rod that's, say, about five-eighths of an inch in diameter, about 12 inches long or so, put it right on the head, get about a three-pound hammer, and just wrap it good and hard to kind of flatten it just a bit. I mean, don't get crazy with it because you can break the housing, but just give it a right. good wrap and then put the right socket in there, and they should come on out. Okay. That works pretty well. All right, well, thank you. All right, Dean. All right, sir. Thanks, man. Okay. Bye-bye. 499-9526, the number. If you want to be part of the Automotive Fire, we'd love to have you. And we've got Britt on line. Good morning, Britt. Hey, how you doing today, Doing sir? great, sir. Good morning. Let me ask you, I got a 2006 Mazda 3. Uh-huh. uh-huh. It died out on the road the other day on me, mm-hmm. and uh, I put a new battery in it, and it's working great. Okay. But uh, my battery lights coming on going off after driving a little while ago yeah uh, most likely brit what's happened is that the alternator is not charging that's why the battery went dead what happens with a car is that the alternator actually makes the current the battery just stores it and when alternator quits charging the battery can subsidize it for a while but it's taking energy out not putting it back so the first symptom you get is a dead battery and people change the battery but you just treated the symptom and not the problem yeah so i had the alternator checked out well it's not necessarily an alternator though it's alternator is oh. not charging. Okay. See, that's, that's PCM-controlled alternator, so you could be not getting a signal from the PCM enabling it to charge. There's some things that can keep it from charging other than just the alternator. Okay, so, so you have to get that somebody knows what they're doing, and that's not going to be a part store, I can assure you. Well, I was going to uh, change out the alternator. Well, that wouldn't do that, man, because that alternator is expensive. If you put a rebuilt one on there, you got worse than you had before. You may not even get close to fixing your problem. Okay. Like I said, there's things that can make that alternator not charge other than the alternator. Right, and if you do end up using a part store alternator, they're going to take your original one back as a core. That's right. And uh-huh. it is gone. That's gone. And, and, and you never you get, get it back. Then when you go through about okay. three of those and you got to have one, you go back to Mazda, they say, hey, we got to have the Mazda alternator back or you're going to have to eat the core. Now you're paying for a Mazda alternator plus a core charge plus the old one because you can't give it back because you had to give it. Right. So you're going to get in just deeper and deeper and deeper, and you may not ever cure your problem. Okay, that sir, thing needs, needs to be checked by somebody who knows what to do, and that's a pretty hard one to check. I say it's all PCM controlled. Number okay. of things can disable it other than the alternator. Okay, thank you all so all much. Right, sir. All thank right, you. sir. Bye bye. Four nine 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 five two six number. We're going to take one last quick little break and be right back with more on the Automotive Hour. Just a guy here for Agco Automotive with a little advice for those who overshare on Facebook. I know I friended you, but please, I don't need to know what you had for breakfast or where you just scratched. I don't need to know your Uncle Dominic's political beliefs or that your mom painted her kitchen the color called Frosted Fern. And for the last time, we don't care that your cat, Doogie Meowser, really looks like Neil Patrick Harris. Some more advice? In this tight economy, why waste money on a new vehicle? Stick with your older model and take good care of it to make sure it lasts. Come to Agco for quality maintenance and repair, and we'll save you from throwing money away on a big note. 
so you can pay other bills or save for something else. In Facebook terms, that's something you'll definitely like. Want more info? Visit agcoauto.com. That's A-G-C-O-A-U-T-O dot com. Agco, it's the place to go. Hey, welcome back. If you just join us, the Automotive Hour. I'm your host, Louis Altazan, with Mr. Brian Terry. Hey, between tools, we'll try to answer any automotive questions you might have. Still got a lot of time. Why don't you go give us a call? It's 499-9526. The last caller, I know that's probably not what he wanted to hear, but right. we see that very, 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 very often. And what happens, of course, is that the battery goes dead is the first sign that you see. Well, that's a symptom of a problem. Correct. So they put a new battery in it. Well, now the light flickers on or whatever, or the new battery goes dead again. Well, now the next step is to go and get an alternator. And that is the absolute wrong thing to do because you have actually opened yourself up to a much, much, much bigger problem. Most definitely. You had a good OEM alternator that was probably charging other than maybe a broken wire or so what have you that's causing a sensor that's keeping it from charging you know something as simple as a, a temperature sensor may actually keep the alternator from charging right I mean, there's all kinds of things that can do that well now you got a piece of junk rebuilt aftermarket alternator or, or worse you had a chinese knockoff alternator on if you bought a new one right well it goes bad so you bring it back after about three times through the cycle you realize this is going nowhere so now you go to mazda and they pop you with about 500 dollars for replacement and, oh, by the way, we need a core charge. Correct. Well, that's another hundred and a half. Well, you show up there with your Chinese knockoff and say, no, sir, that's not a Mazda That's not a Mazda there. part. We're not taking that. So now you got the triple whammy because you got to buy an alternator that you didn't need in the first place. Uh-huh. You got to total loss on what you've already spent because you can't give it back because you got to give it in as a core charge. Plus, you're losing the core charge from Mazda and uh-huh. or whoever the case may be. You go through all of this, you get the miles alternator. Well, you know what? The it's light's still, still on, still exactly. ain't charging. So now what? Well, now you got to take it to the shop, and they're gonna check it and tell you, well, you got a broken wire circuit C25 inside the harness leading from the PCM to the alternator, or whatever the case might be. Right. And that's one of those things. I know that guys like to say, hey, I can fix this. You know, da 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 da. But it's just gotten way, way beyond that with computer-controlled alternators and charging systems you take something as simple as a chevy pickup it has five different charging strategies right it's going to charge five different ways depending on what to do at the time any number of factors and it can quit charging or do all sorts of things in ways you can't possibly comprehend right charging systems have evolved just like the the car has evolved back in the day the alternator charged the battery. The battery ran oh, yeah. everything, period. Yeah. If you want to and check it, you just disconnect the battery. kept running. The alternator was good. There you go. You can't <laughs> you do, do that, that now. You do that now, you'll wipe out the PCM. But buying a new alternator testing machine right now, it's $3,700 just for this one piece of equipment. does nothing but check. And that only gives you a part of the check. Correct. You still got to have a factory scan tool to see what the PCM's commanding. And on and on and on and on and on, it just is not anything simple. You're going to waste a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of money and probably make things a whole, whole lot worse trying to fix this. Most definitely. When I say the alternator's not charging, I didn't say the alternator was bad. I said it's not charging. Most of the time on Mazda, or I can't say most of the time, but a lot of time on Mazda, we find broken wires in the wiring harness. Sure. A lot of problems with wires are pretty brittle. Honda? Honda does the same thing. thing. A wire breaks somewhere in that 10,000 miles of wiring, and if you don't find that, and what's worse is that it may not completely break. It may just crack and just touch sometimes, not touch other times. 
And that's something you're just not going to find. And if you go put a junk alternator in there, now you just created another big problem. Exactly. Bigger problem than you had to start with and still got to fix the original problem. So not something you really want to tackle yourself on that unless you're awfully, awfully tuned to it. Right. Hey, let's go back to our phone lines with Matt. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Yes, Good sir. morning. Got a question for you, just a generic question right, related to aftermarket parts. Okay. Now, all of my life, I've been using aftermarket parts when I changed out automobile parts, mm-hmm. and I've had pretty good luck with it, okay. except for one idler pulley mm-hmm. for a 97 Plymouth Voyager mm-hmm. that the only thing that would stop the belt from squeaking was to go back and, yes, sir. and change mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. get the uh, factory part for that. Yes, sir. And, you know, my dad was an, all, an automobile mechanic mm-hmm. back in the 50s and 60s, right. and that's where I grew up working on parts. Mm-hmm. And he always used them. So I just kind of want to get your... Since I hear you talking yes, um, about poor aftermarket parts, I want to get your your put on absolute de- deplorable the quality on the aftermarket junk nowadays. Matt, you can't think of anything you did 50 years ago and relate it to today because 50 years ago, aftermarket parts were made generally by the same people who made the OEM parts somewhere here in the states. Now, almost all of that comes from offshore, whether it's China, Taiwan, whatever, and most of what we check doesn't even meet their specs out of the box. Now, that doesn't mean everyone is bad. What we inspect on aftermarket stuff uh, that I've checked, roughly 50 to 60% of it doesn't meet their specs coming out of the box. Now, that doesn't mean that 50 to 60% of people are going to be dissatisfied. It means you may be in the 40% three times in a row, in which case you think it's fine. Also, there's lots of times things happen, and you don't have any idea that's what caused it. In other words, you put a aftermarket alternator on the car now all of a sudden it jumps in second gear and won't come out you say oh man my transmission's gone out you go trade the car in and it was the alternator causing it well never equated to each other so there's a world of things that happen the only thing i can tell you you know my probably 40 50 60 parts a day as opposed to most people who might not buy that many in their lifetime and even the OEM stuff is getting pretty poor quality. I mean, we're taking brand-new GM, Ford, and Chrysler parts out of the box that don't even meet their specs, not even close. The aftermarket right. is so bad that, I mean, we absolutely refuse to use it. I can't afford to use it. It just costs right. too much. I just can't afford to use it because I can't afford to have all my customers mad at me, and I can't afford to keep changing this junk out. Okay, so really it's just kind of a sign of the times uh, it is. like everything else. Well, yeah, go to the hardware store and get a lawn sprinkler, and you plug it in, and what happens? It sprays in your face. You know, It doesn't even come out the end of the nozzles. And it's just like everything else, they've gotten a whole, whole lot worse, and, boy, they have just really got exponentially worse. But, yeah, I, I think you'll have a lot of trouble if you keep using them. Hey, I'm sorry, we're completely out of time. I want to tell everybody how much we appreciate them listening this morning and every Saturday morning on Automotive Hour. I'd like to thank all our podcasters for listening this week and every week. Tell your friends, go to iTunes, and give us a written rating. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Give us a written rating. That's the way we kind of get rewarded, and sure appreciate that. Hey, preceding was opinion based on our experience in the automotive industry. Have a great weekend. Thank you.